there used to be this show on National Geographic called Doomsday Preppers. Any of you ever heard of that show or seen that show, Doomsday Preppers? A couple, Jonathan and Sharon, like, I don't know if I want to admit it, but uh, you, they would, what they would do is they would find people who were preparing for doomsday situations uh, that may uh, cause the, the collapse of the economy or the breakdown of society or, you know, things that are like uh, an electromagnetic pulse is going to come up from a solar flare and it's going to take out all, you know, electric things that run on electricity. And so people would prepare for these things and they, this show went around and found them and um, would show how they're preparing. And a company called Practical Preppers uh, would then give an assessment of how prepared were these people for the situation they're trying to prepare for and they give them uh, advice for improvement, how they can be more prepared. And interesting little fact is that uh, Katie's cousin was actually asked to be on this show, uh, but he, his job wouldn't let him be on it. They said, no, you can't do that. Um, but I have seen his bunker uh, that he has in his basement and his food supply. Like, I have, you know, however many weeks or months of food that is non-perishable that I can, that we can eat. And he has, they raise, uh, grow uh, gardens so they can provide for their own food. And while this show um, represented extreme examples of preparing people uh, for crisis situations, there's websites and organizations that actually recommend this as this is something you should do. You know, those things are kind of extreme examples, but here's things you should do. You know, the Red Cross is one of these websites. They, they suggest that people should have an emergency kit, uh, they should have a plan, and they should know about what are the potential like disasters, you know, natural disasters that can happen in my area so I can be uh, prepared for those. And then another site lists uh, these examples of crisis situations that you should prepare for. Um, and some of these you're going to find that, oh, this isn't about uh, you know, a meteor striking and blowing up everything. Some of these are like things you're actually dealing with. So one is, do you have an unexpected big expense or layoff that blows your tight budget? School and work is canceled due to a crippling heat wave. The electrical or water grid goes down for a few days. A nasty hurricane floods your city for a week. An epidemic is spreading and you're quarantined to your home. Does that sound familiar? Civil order breaks down with mass unrest in the streets, or a nearby city is attacked by an enemy. And are you getting any anxiety as I read those things and thinking, I need to leave right now and start prepping for that. I'm not ready for this big expense, or I'm not ready for uh, electrical, you know, all the electricity going down. What would I even do? And some people look at this stuff and they think, well, you know, that's never going to happen. Like, what are the odds? I'm just going to kind of keep living my life. And some people want to be prepared for anything, and that's how I am, Katie kind of makes fun of me, but I like to be prepared for anything. I really like the Boy Scouts motto of being prepared. Um, and if someone could have told you beforehand that there's going to be a global pandemic uh, that's going to shut down your state and shut down parts of the country uh, in March of 2020 uh, with a two-month-long stay-at-home order, would you have prepared any differently for that crisis event? Uh, I mean, do you remember what the shelves looked like in March? Last March, toilet paper gone, meats gone, uh, hand sanitizers gone, and people were going on preparing. Like, I want to be the stay-at-home order. I need to get all this stuff. And Katie and I used to watch a show called The Walking Dead, uh, which is about um, how uh, humanity is surviving and beginning to rebuild society after a, a zombie outbreak. Uh, and so for fun, Katie and I have discussed, you know, what would we do if there's a zombie apocalypse? Where would we go? What would we need to survive, and who would we take with us, you know? Okay, Katie's sister's a nurse, so she's got that covered. Ooh, Katie's a teacher, and you know, her other sister's a teacher, so okay, we can teach the kids and teach ourselves. We're kind of like, 
covering, like how would we, you know, we just do it for fun. Um, what would we do if there actually was one? And there's lots of things we prepare for, a test, a job interview, a big trip. You may even prepare to lose a job or to have an expense uh, that you aren't going to expect to come and you're saving an emergency fund in case those things happen. Uh, you may prepare to die by creating a will or buying life insurance. You're probably preparing to get old by saving for retirement. You prepare for something to go wrong with your car with car insurance. You prepare for something to go wrong with your health with health insurance. And the point of preparing is to be ready. Uh, and so, I want you to just think about it as I've been going through this. Are, any, are there any disasters or crises that you are prepared for? Uh, but, but maybe another question would be, what's the most important thing to prepare for? What's the most important thing to be ready for in your life? The answer to that, I would suggest, is the day we stand before Jesus is the day is the greatest thing that we can prepare for. And so how much thought and effort are you putting into preparing for that? What if your relationship with God was headed for disaster or headed for a crisis? How would you know if your relationship with God was heading for a disaster? Today we're continuing the series in the Gospel according to Luke called To Seek and to Save. And the first two chapters of this gospel account focused on the birth and growth of Jesus and his cousin John. These two people fulfill specific roles in God's plan of salvation. And the whole thing is is that God's salvation will come through Jesus. But there's a problem. Many in Israel were not ready to meet Jesus. The people of Israel thought, you know, we're good with God. But the reality was that they weren't good with God. They thought their biggest issue was an, an external one. We need the Roman Empire to get out of here, and we want to be saved from that. But that wasn't their biggest issue. Their biggest issue was an internal one, their own hearts, and how they were responding to God, and whether they were loving God with all they have, or loving their neighbors as themselves. The problem was how they were relating to God and relating to others. And John prepared the way for Jesus by waking them up from their complacency. They thought God's judgment would be for all the other people, but not for them. And John was waking them up see the reality that they are in danger of God's judgment, and so they needed to prepare themselves for Jesus' coming. And today's passage focuses on John, who is later known as John the Baptist. And John's role is to prepare the way for Jesus, to get people ready to receive him as their king, and then to step out of the way. His whole job is, I'm preparing, and once he prepared, you know, once the preparation is done, then he steps out of the way. And John gets people ready to meet the one they've been waiting for. And so, for us, it's, do you think you're ready to meet Jesus. And what would prepare you to meet him uh, when he comes back a uh, second time to judge the world? And so as we look at this passage, the first two verses of John chapter 3 uh, place John in a specific historical setting by giving the, uh, providing us with the name of the Roman emperor at the time, government officials and religious leaders. And from this we can date John's ministry uh, to around A.D. Uh, 29, uh, give or take years. So first century, 29 years into the first century. But this also uh, introduces John to us as a prophet. And many prophets in the Old Testament, if you remember the book of Micah, they start off by naming, uh, here's the kings uh, that were serving at this time. Um, and here, and they often say, oh, this prophet was the son of so-and-so, Isaiah, the son of Amos. Uh, and they, and then it says, the word of the Lord came to them. And this is exactly what John or Luke does for John. And these prophets were spokesmen, calling God's people back to God from how they've gone astray and telling them, if you don't return to God and if you don't start uh, living in a different way and trusting in Him and changing your life, uh, there's going to be disaster coming your way. There's going to be consequences for your sin 
and how you're living. And this is exactly what John does for the people he serves as a prophet. And verse 3 summarizes John's ministry. It says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there are four takeaways uh, from this statement. Um, so, sorry, three takeaways. First, the place where John is baptizing is significant, the Jordan River. And when the people of Israel were rescued from Egypt, um, when they were taken out of slavery in Egypt and God led them uh, to the Promised Land, they go up north through the wilderness, and they, this would be this side for you guys, they on the, they're on the east side of the Jordan River. So this is where they're at, Jordan River, Promised Land right here. And so they had to cross the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. And the crossing of the Jordan River was... Um, this moment when, okay, we are now out of slavery in Egypt, we've come, we are finally in the land that God has promised to our ancestors and promised to us. And so now it begins them uh, inheriting that land, taking it, and also uh, conquering it. And so John is taking people back to where Israel got its start. Uh, just like they went through the waters of the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, so now John is having them enter the waters again through baptism. And John is telling them, we need to restart Things are so messed up. We need to reboot this nation. We need to go back to our roots and begin all over again. And anyone who wants to do that should go back through the Jordan River. Just like going through the Jordan River to get here, this thing is so messed up, we just need to go back through it. We need to restart. And you might think, well, how would we start a renewal movement in the United States? And, like, you know, this country needs to start over again. This is messed up. Maybe we go uh, to a significant place from the birth of our nation. Maybe we go to Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where the Declaration of Independence is signed, and be like, we need to start this thing over. Maybe we go to uh, the harbor where the Boston Tea Party occurred, where people are saying, you know, we're not going to have any taxation without representation. Maybe we go back there and be like, we need to start this thing over. And that's what John is doing. He's going back to this significant spot for the beginning of their time as a nation. So first, the Jordan River is significant. Second, John is calling people to repentance. And water cleansing was used in certain Old Testament rituals. And there are some other Jewish groups using baptism and ritual um, bathing. Uh, but John's use of baptism is different. John's baptism is called a baptism of repentance. Meaning his baptism that he's doing for people signifies or is a symbol of their repentance. And so we may ask, well, what is repentance? And the basic meaning of the word is to change your mind. It's a change of mind. Uh, but I like to think of it as taking a U-turn. You're going one way, and it's like, no, I need to go a different way. You need to make a U-turn. You need to change the way you're going in your life. And John's baptism is a symbol that someone has turned around from the way they're going. And third, the baptism of repentance is for the forgiveness of sins, he says. It's for the forgiveness of sin. This act of repentance, of turning around, allows one to experience the forgiveness of their sins. In repenting, you, you turn from sin in a self-centered life and you turn to God. So it's like I'm you know, I'm committing sin, I'm living for myself. It's like you need to repent. Live differently. Turn around. Turn from all that way of living and turn to God. That's what repentance is. And baptism is a symbol for all of this. It's a symbol of forgiveness because it's a picture of cleansing. It's a picture of a fresh start and a new way of living as someone turns from living for themselves to live for God. Later in the Bible, it's going to be connected with the death and resurrection of Jesus because uh, you are dead to sin and alive to God. You're buried in the water, then you rise again to new life. And verses 4 through 6 um, show us how this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins fits in with God's plan of salvation. 
And these verses quoted from Isaiah chapter 40 uh, that we read earlier, um, it's where Isaiah, uh, disaster is happening to the nation, but then he steps into the future, and ch- starting in chapter 40, he starts telling the people, God is going to bring us back from exile. He's going to comfort us. There's going to be a salvation. There's going to be a new exodus. Just like we're under the rule of, the, of these nations in exile, God's going to take us out of that. God's going to comfort them, take care of their sin. And then it goes on to say what Luke quotes here in verse 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is the one preparing people for the comfort, peace, and forgiveness of God. And John's message is intended to give hope to the low and humble, and to humble the prideful. And in this way, a highway is made for God's salvation to be seen. You know, the, the lower you're going to be lifted up and the pride are going to be brought down, that's going to be the highway for how God's salvation is going to come and be experienced. And verses 7 through 9 describe John's message that he's giving that's preparing people for God's salvation. He says to them, uh, in verse 7 it says, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's goal here is to get people to realize there is a disaster coming to them that they are not ready for. These people are not ready to see the salvation of God. Their hearts aren't prepared to receive the Messiah coming to save them. Why? Because they think God's judgment is for the Gentiles, the nations, those people. You know, like, we're good, but those people, that's who God's judgment is coming for. Not them. They think they're good with God. They think they have nothing to worry about. But the problem is that they have misplaced confidence. They've put their confidence in something that doesn't actually make them good with God. John describes the judgment as the wrath to come. And when you think of wrath, it's not God exploding in anger. You know, it's just out of control. I'm just fed up with this. I just need to do something about it. That's not what God's wrath is about. That's often how our anger comes out. Like we just kind of get just pent up and then we just explode. Uh, but God is not out of control. It's his stand against all that is not good, sinful, selfish, and idolatrous. And John warns that God's judgment is coming. In verse 9, he uses the image of an axe that's already like set up against a tree. And God is looking over the trees to see if they have fruit. And if they don't have fruit, he's going to cut them down and throw them into the fire. And the question to them is, are you bearing fruit in your life? Are you growing the fruit of righteousness and holiness? Are you growing the fruit of loving God and loving your neighbor? What does your life look like, he says? Go look at it. But the problem is that these people think they're safe from God's judgment. Why is that? John tells them, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So they're thinking just because they're part of the family of Abraham, just because that's their family lineage and heritage, uh, that they are good with God. And this is where their misplaced confidence is. They're, they're confident that they're on good terms with God uh, because of their family lineage. You know, we are the chosen people of God. And so we're good. But John wants them to wake up and show them uh, that everything isn't okay. And people who don't think they need saving won't rejoice in God's salvation. John is showing them their biggest need isn't salvation from the Romans, but salvation from themselves. You guys have gone astray. And so how does he do that? First, he calls them a brood of vipers. And I kind of wonder what a preaching class with the 
John the Baptist would sound like. Here's what you need to do. You need to start off by calling people venomous snakes. That really gets their attention. You know, imagine that if I just started a sermon, you brood of vipers! <laughs> we started going like that. But brood could all be translated as offspring. And their confidence is in the fact that we're offspring of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. But John calls them children of snakes. You look more like venomous snakes than you look like Abraham. Snakes would also flee from their holes when there was a fire in the desert. And so he's like, you know, you brood of vipers are all coming out to him. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? And so that, might, that image might be at play too. Second, John says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, God is able to take something as dead and lifeless and cold and unresponsive as this stone and make it a child of Abraham. In other words, God can make anyone with a hard heart into a child of Abraham. It's not just you guys. You know, If you want to be like Abraham, you're supposed to have faith, and God can give that faith to anybody. And third, John exhorts them to bear fruit. In verse 8, he said, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Who your daddy is doesn't matter if you aren't living for God. It also does them no good to go through a religious ritual like baptism, but not start living differently. The judge is going to look for fruit. He's not going to see, did you get baptized at one point? Or whose family are you in? Or what label do you give yourself? So we can ask ourselves, how might we have misplaced confidence? Perhaps we'd say, I'm a Christian, and feel confident before God because we identify as a Christian. Perhaps we'd say, I trusted in Jesus and prayed a prayer when I was 10 years old. And we feel we're confident in that. Like, no, I made a decision for Christ, I prayed a prayer, now I'm saved. We might place our confidence in that. Perhaps we say, I was baptized at you know, this age. Perhaps we say, I attend church services, I give faithfully, I serve and help out, I pray and read my Bible. Perhaps we feel confident uh, because we go to the right kind of church or believe the right things. Not like all those people who have it wrong. But all of these give false confidence. It is misplaced confidence because... None of them can make us right with God. They are relying on something other than God, and the judge is looking for fruit. And perhaps you're thinking, well, those things kind of sound like fruit. Pensures, services, giving, read my Bible, praying. And so I'm doing those for God. That is my fruit. But let's see what kind of fruit John says that God is looking for. Verses 10 through 14, he starts applying his message. What does repentance look like? As people realize they need to make a change, three different groups ask John, what should we do? So first the crowds ask what we should do. And John tells them in verse 11, Whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And John's answer to them is a general exhortation to you know, be generous with your lives. Look out and care for other people. Your stuff is not your own, but you use it for other people's good. And second text collectors ask, Teacher, what shall we do? What shall we do? John responds in verse 13, Collect more, no more than you are authorized to do. And you had to buy the right to collect taxes. And often uh, wealthy Romans would buy the right to collect taxes in a certain area, and then they'd hire out tax collectors to do the actual tax collecting. But uh, you had to pay for the right to tax people beforehand. Uh, so they already had, were out the money. And so what they would do is they would charge the Roman tax plus a little surcharge on top in order to make their money back and to make a profit. Uh, but then the tax collectors that are actually out doing it, you have the people that own the right, the wealthy people that own the right to tax people, and you have the tax collectors doing the tax stuff, and then they would add a little on top too, and you know, they're the ones kind of in charge who's going to stop them. It's like, this is how much you have to pay, because nobody uh, would be uh, questioning them. And 
John tells them, don't charge more than you're authorized to charge. And tax collectors weren't liked by anyone. Gentiles didn't like them, non-Jewish people. Jews especially didn't like them, because if you're a Jewish person collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire, you're seen as a traitor. Like, the Roman Empire took us over. Why are you working for them? And now you're taking money from your own people. And what's interesting is that John doesn't tell them, leave your profession. But he says, transform how you do it. Transform how you do your work. Lastly, a group of soldiers asked what they should do. These are probably Jewish soldiers, perhaps the bodyguards of the tax collectors. And John tells them, do not extort from anyone by threats or by false accusations. And be content with your wages. It would be easy for a soldier, you know, who's all armored up and you know, has the authority of the government on their side, to uh, abuse their authority, to use their authority to their advantage and their power. And again, John doesn't tell them, you need to leave that profession, but he says, transform how you do that profession. And repentance and fruit that should, that should come with it, with the repentance, ought to reach down into the normal, everyday activities of our lives. John calls them to a deep, transformed way of living. And so for yourself, does your relationship with God change your everyday activities, even how you go about your work? Because we can think there's this kind of divide. You know, church, when I'm at the church, that's like spiritual stuff. But when I'm at my job, you know, that's just kind of the world stuff. And I just got to operate by that. But John's saying, no, your relationship with God should transform how you do your work. If you ask John, you know, what should I do in order to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? What might he say to you? That's what I asked myself when uh, we went through this passage with our Gospel Fluency group. As I was asking, what might John say to an evangelical pastor? What might he say to me? And don't place your confidence in this and do this to transform the way you do your work. What would he say to a teacher or a retired person or a stay-at-home mom or whatever profession or station in life you find yourself in? And these actions that John says to take express mercy generosity and justice. They reflect God's own character that he's shown toward us. And so do you reflect what God is like in every activity you undertake? Does his influence show up in every nook and every cranny of your life? God is not interested in us blocking out an hour on Sunday for a church service or blocking out you know, a couple minutes in the morning to read our Bibles or you know, a couple minutes to pray before a meal or blocking out time for gospel community meetings. He's more interested in how we live the other 167 hours of the week. If it's like, you know, my time for God is this time and this time and this time, and, you know, church service is about an hour. It's like God cares more about what you do the other 167 hours of the week than what you do for this one hour. The fruit God is looking for isn't to have certain parts of our day or week dedicated to Him, but a whole life dedicated to Him. And after these questions... A different type of question comes up regarding who John is. John was a powerful preacher, and he's starting this renewal movement in Israel. People are coming out to be baptized to him. And so it would be natural for people to wonder, is this guy the Christ? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's coming to save us? And knowing people are asking, John clears up this question. In verse 16, he says this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John shows that the Christ is greater than him in three ways. First, the Christ is greater than John as a person. He says the Messiah who's coming 
Christ and Messiah, those are synonyms, uh, just translations from different languages. Uh, the Christ is mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to serve as his servant, untying his sandals. Second, the Messiah's baptism will be greater than his. John says, I'm baptizing you with water. I mean, sure, you're going under and getting wet, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That actually does something in your life. And there's different options of what it could mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, but my view is that it refers to the two effects of a response to Jesus. Receiving Jesus leads to baptism with the Holy Spirit, but rejecting Jesus leads to fire or judgment. And third, the Christ is greater than John because he's the actual judge, while John only warns about the judgment and describes it. And in verse 17, John uses the image of a threshing, of threshing to describe the judgment. And he, yeah, that's maybe a term you hear in the Bible, like oh, threshing floor. He says he has his winnowing fork. Here's my winnowing fork. It actually wouldn't look like this. This is a broom, obviously. But it'd be some sort of like fork that allows you to pick up uh, the grain harvest. And what would happen um, is the, there'd be kind of like this hard floor um, outside or with a, 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 in a, a building that the wind could blow through. And so they bring the grain, and it has all, you know, the kernel is like inside. There's like this hard outer um, shell. And so you put it on the threshing floor, and then you might have some sort of animal um, that has almost like a um, steamroller type rolling thing to go around it, and then it crushes the outer shell off of that kernel of grain. And then to use your winnowing fork to thresh it, you would put it in there, and you throw it up in the air, and the outer husk is a lot lighter than the, in the actual piece of wheat. And so the wind would blow away the husk and then down would fall um, the grain that you want to keep. And so it's, that's how you separate the wheat from the chaff that would blow away. You'd blow up in the air, the wind would um, blow the chaff away, and then the kernels of grain um, would fall down. And Bob can maybe correct me later after I got that right because he grew up in Nebraska and knows all about this stuff. Um, but that's what... Um, John says the Christ is going to do. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And John says this is what the Christ is going to do in the judgment. It's what Jesus is going to do. In verses 18 through 20 summarize and tell us where John ends up. It says, So many, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been approved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. And so John doesn't stop with exhorting the general population. He even exhorts uh, the person who's ruling over that region uh, that he is doing his ministry. And he gets locked up in prison where he eventually is beheaded. And the summer, summary in verse 18 tells us that with many exhortations, many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. And as we've gone through this passage, uh, is that... Is that how you would describe what John was doing? Preaching good news? Preaching the gospel? And it makes us wonder, well, what is the good news? If John is preaching the good news in this passage, what is the good news? And John isn't telling people about Jesus' death for their sins or about his resurrection. Uh, he's not saying that. That's not what we're totally saying. And Jesus, when he's preaching the good news, he isn't even saying that. The good news, in, in summary, is... Uh, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come near. You see that in Mark chapter 1. And John is preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there's forgiveness for how we fall short, but also life change. So the gospel does include Jesus' death and resurrection, but how can John and Jesus be preaching it before Jesus died and was raised? And Jesus was only later telling his followers, look, I'm going to die, 
and be raised. And they just didn't get it. People weren't getting it. So he's saying the kingdom of God is coming. And maybe you're thinking, well, this whole thing sounds like I'm saved by what I do. I have to do these fruits of repentance. And if I don't, God is going to judge me. When you think about it, that Jesus is a king, and to be part of his kingdom and share his benefits, the benefits of it, he needs to be the king of your life. And that makes sense, right? The only way to be forgiven is if Jesus is Lord of your life, and the fruit that is what shows that he is the Lord of your life. Because if it's like, well, I want to be part of your kingdom, Jesus, with the salvation that comes with the forgiveness and, you know, a new creation, new heavens and new earth. I want all of that. Uh, but it's like, okay, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you have to surrender to the king, right? You can't be part of a kingdom if you aren't surrendered to the king. And so that's what he's saying. Like, you need to repent and turn from him, and forgiveness is available. And one of the things that the, the reformers in the 16th century would say is that salvation is by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. There's fruit. Salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It can't just be like, yeah, I'll, I'll just sign. I'll, I believe it all. I believe all those facts happen. Um, that's not faith. Faith is a, a trust, a surrender, and it never is the only thing. You can think of it this way. Not wanting to bear fruit as part of our relationship with God is like asking to be part of someone's family with, without wanting to act like them or follow their household rules. Instead, you're only interested in the money. Ooh, I want to be part of this family because they have, you know, four-wheelers, sweet cars, and a hot tub or whatever. I want to be part of that family. I want all the goodies. And it's like, okay, well, if you're going to live in this house, this is what it means. We say, no, I don't want to do any of that. I just want all the goods. And that's what it's like. Or uh, it's like wanting to join a championship football team so you can have a Super Bowl ring, but you don't want to show up to practices. I just want, you know, I just want the ring, and I kind of want the glory, and I want to be able to say that I played for you guys. Like, but you never played for us. You don't practice or come to any games. John is waking people up from their sleepy, lazy way of following God to get them to see that they're in danger of judgment. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to be looking for fruit, and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And yes, he is God's salvation, but they shouldn't assume that they will be saved by the way they're living. They can't put confidence in their ancestry or in these religious rituals they would just do you know, every so often. And you can think about the purpose of an on-ramp when you're getting on the freeway. Why, why are there on-ramps for getting on the freeway? Well, for one, on-ramps let you get up to speed so that by the time you're on the freeway, you're going the speed of what the cars are going. And then it you know, slowly merges on, lets you get on it. Because, you know, if it was just a, a perpendicular stop, and then those people, choose them, it's 70 miles per hour going through, and then you're supposed to turn on to that just from stopping. Like, that's going to be a problem. The on-ramp prepares you to get on the freeway, lets you get up to speed and merge onto it. And John is creating an on-ramp for people to get on the path Jesus will call them to walk down. People are traveling the wrong path in their life. They're trusting in the wrong things. They're living with, not living with God at the center. And John is calling them to turn around and get on the right path. John is preparing people to receive the salvation that's going to come through Jesus. John is getting people to respond to Jesus' message and to enter his kingdom. He's getting them up to speed so that when Jesus comes, it's like we can just merge right on to that. He's calling them to dethrone themselves so that they can surrender to a different king. And so for us, how do you know if your relationship with God is headed for disaster? John tells these people, if your confidence is in your family lineage or religious rituals, then your relationship with God is headed for disaster. If your faith doesn't affect 
how you live by growing fruit and your relationship with God is going to be disaster. And so how can we be prepared to stand before Jesus? Jesus will be looking for fruit and he will know who's for real, who has real faith, has a real relationship with him. He'll separate the wheat from the chaff. And so we can, you can ask yourself, have I let go of other sources of confidence before God? You know, do I have this long list of things of like, well, I'm, you know, I call myself a Christian. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've been baptized and put my faith in Jesus 20 years ago or whatever it is. And you're saying, like, that's my source of confidence before God. Do you have, have you let go of any other, of those other sources of confidence before God? Have you put your faith only in Jesus as the one who offers forgiveness? And we can ask, am I turning from my sin and turning to Jesus as my Lord who forgives me and directs my life? Am I turning from living for myself to live with Jesus on the throne? Am I bearing fruit, looking more and more like Jesus and a child of God? And the point here isn't to ask, okay, well, how much fruit do I need until God will be pleased with me and will let me in? And that's not really the right question to ask. It's more about life orientation, lifestyle. It's not about what your life looks like for an hour on Sunday or an hour on Tuesday or Monday or whatever it is. What it looks like for the other 167, 166 hours of the week. What's it oriented around? Around? Does it reflect the values of Jesus' kingdom? Does it look like he's on the throne or like you're on the throne? Whose kingdom do you live for, his or yours? And who are you turning to for confidence before God and guidance for how to live? In whom do you place your hope? And forgiveness for the ways we fall short is available. That's part of it. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. But we can't pick and choose what parts of the kingdom that we want, like going through a buffet line. And, you know, I want the forgiveness part. Ooh, new heavens, new earth. That's resurrected someday. That sounds good. Oh, bearing fruit with repentance? No, I don't want that part. You know, it's not a buffet line. Yes, there's freedom from the penalty of sin, forgiveness. But if you want that, you also have to want freedom from the power of sin over your life. And freedom from the presence of sin, too. There's no forgiveness without repentance because until you're ready to turn from whatever else you're trusting in to make you right with God and turn from your sin and selfish way of living, you can't be forgiven. And several years ago, Katie and I were flying to California for a vacation and I had this little multi-tool, you know, one of the ones that kind of folds out and has like little clippers and like a knife that can pull out of it and stuff like that. I accidentally kept it in my carry-on. You know, this, having this multi-tool, it's like, why do you need that? I mean, it was like my preparation thing. Like, blah, blah. Kitty always made fun of me. I'm like, what's going to happen that you need that? It's not what's going to happen. It's be preparing, prepared for whatever's going to happen. What if the plane blows up and we fly, you know, land on the island? We've all seen Lost. Maybe you've seen Lost. So, like, what if that happens? Like, you don't plan for the unexpected. You just, that's going to happen. You just plan to be prepared when it does. I had this little multi-tool in my backpack, and I forgot to on my carry-on, I forgot to take it out. So it goes to the scanner, and they're like, oh, we got to check your backpack. And they pull it out, and they show it to me. And at that point, I had two choices. Either I could keep my multi-tool and not board the plane, so they're not going to let me go on it without it. So that it's either, right now, we're going to throw this away, because you're not going to get it back. You can't take it on the plane. So it's either I can keep my multi-tool and not get on the plane, or I can let, leave it behind and get on the plane and continue on with my vacation. And so let's say the plane is a relationship with God. It's free to get on, it's open to everyone, but if you want to board the plane, you have to leave some things behind. You can't, you have to leave all other sources of confidence to make you right with God behind. Jesus is the one you trust in to make you right with God. 
You also have to leave your sin behind. You can't be like, I want to get on the plane for a relationship with God, but you know, I've got this sin I kind of packed up in my luggage, and I want to bring that with me too. It's like, no, you can't bring that on this plane. You, that's not, that doesn't come with you. You can't want to hold on to that and pack up your sin, come into a relationship with God, and say, but I want, I want both. I want a relationship with God, and I want to keep having all my sin. You can't pack a bag of sin while also desiring to be forgiven for it. You also have to leave your crown and your throne behind. Jesus is now king of your life. And as a church, we summarize all of this as surrender. It includes trusting Jesus for forgiveness, letting him run our lives, and be the source of our hope. And we let go of our way of doing things, our sin, our other sources of confidence and hope, and we surrender to him. But it's a continuous process, and the longer we walk with him, the more we're going to see our sin and our selfishness and our false sources of confidence before God, and then we're going to surrender more and more of our lives to him. You don't have to be perfect to get out of the plane. You just have to be wanting to leave your sin behind and want the forgiveness for those sins, and you're going to continue messing up while you're on the plane of relationship with God, and there's forgiveness for that. So what does it look like for you in your particular situation to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? What would it look like if Jesus was in charge of how you go about your day? But there's a second part to it, because we surrender our lives, and John's role was to prepare people to surrender to Jesus as their king. And that's a role we have as well. We invite others to surrender all of life to him. And how do we do it? Well, everyone knows, almost, almost everyone you talk to, knows there's something wrong with life, with the world, with themselves, and they're looking for a solution. How do they deal with guilt? How do they deal with shame? How do they deal with their shortcomings and failures? How do they deal with their selfishness? Like, we all have problems like that in our life. And we invite people to give up their other sources of confidence before God. We invite them to leave their sin behind. We invite them to get off the throne of their lives and live with Jesus on the throne. We invite people to reorient their lives around Him. There's a judgment coming. And if people keep going the same direction they're going, they're headed for disaster. They're not prepared for it. And it's our job to warn people, to invite them to this other way of living. And so may we be a community that surrenders all of life to Jesus, both repenting from our sin and selfishness, while rejoicing in the forgiveness we have for it in the past and the ones we know we're going to have in the future. And may we be a community that also invites others to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, as the song said, before your throne. Uh, we trust in Jesus' sacrifice and death on our behalf for our sins. But we also want to be freed from the power that sin still has in our lives. And you've given us the Holy Spirit that we may be free from it. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be free from the presence of sin completely, where you will make everything new, including us. And so Lord, would you make us a community that surrenders our lives to you fully and completely and invites others to do the same. Your son's name we pray. Amen.